You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 45, In Debt with Zachary Stoltzfus. Thanks for joining me. As you can probably guess from the title, we have an interview this episode. But before getting into that, I'd like to talk a bit about where I've been. I just got back from Atlanta, Georgia, where I attended the Conference of the Consortium on the Revolutionary Era, which is an annual meeting of historians who study the period between 1750 and 1850. If you're not familiar with academic conferences, it's mostly professors and grad students presenting their work and engaging in panel discussions, and doing a little hobnobbing on the side. It was a great experience. It was interesting to rub elbows with some of the best scholars currently working in this field, but more important was the chance to see the exciting new ground being broken on all sorts of topics. I saw presentations that ranged from highly technical points of economic and legal history to social history to more traditional military history. I'm hoping to bring what I learned in Atlanta to the show, not only in the metaphorical sense of incorporating it into the narrative, but by bringing on some of the people I met as guests. On that note, what follows is an interview with Zachary Stoltzfus. Just a word of warning up front, we had to record this basically in a hallway at the conference, so there's a little background noise. It's annoying, but the worst of it lasts less than a minute, and the interview should be intelligible throughout. Anyway, without further ado, here's our conversation. My name is Zachary Stoltzfus. I'm a uh, graduate student at Florida State University. I'm a part of the Institute on Napoleon and the French Revolution, um, which is the only institute of its kind that's devoted to the study of, of both the Napoleonic era and, of course, the French Revolution as well. You could say that University of North Texas also focuses on Napoleonic studies as well. So it's, it's North Texas and um, FSU are the big institutions that that really focus on that on this era. Thanks for coming. Let's talk about what you're researching. In a word, debt. A lot of listeners are probably familiar with the fact that um, the French monarchy on the eve of the French Revolution is in a lot of debt, and this helps create the debt crisis that eventually leads to the French Revolution. Um, first, you have the Assembly of Notables called in 1787, where, where the nobility is asked to share the tax burden of the French state, and they declined to, to accept that without first calling the States General, which of course sets in motion 
um, many of the events of the, that have become known as the French Revolution. But there's also a tremendous amount of private debt within France, um, not just at the, no, at the level of the nobility, but pretty much everybody. Property holding in the old regime is essentially kind of like a credit obligation. Your feudal lord gives you a piece of land. In exchange for that, you swear an oath of, of loyalty to your feudal lord. You provide uh, feudal dues to your feudal lord. So there's really um, kind of a, a reciprocal set of expectations or obligations that, that exist in, within that relationship where the feudal lord provides protection for um, their tenants and uh, the, the people that live within their jurisdiction provide them with, with revenue and um, also with labor. And of course, the French Revolution disrupts this entire system. And along the way, credit markets are also disrupted. All of credit during the old regime is based around property. In other words, um, if one wanted to get a loan, one would have to offer a piece of one's property as a guarantor on the loan in case one wasn't able to pay that loan back. The creditor could then come and confiscate a piece of one's property that was uh, stipulated in the, the original loan contract as a guarantor. So that's pretty similar to what we have today. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's still very much a part of credit markets today. Um, this particular practice in France is, goes by the um, term hypothèque, uh, which is still used today in France. And the French Revolution, by changing the way property operates and by changing the way that one owns property, you no longer have this tenurial system of, of property ownership. You no longer have a feudal society. Rather, you have um, individual private property. This really disrupts credit as well, or, or changes credit at the very least meaning that still Epotech is used as um, a, a guarantor in a loan contract. But, but the, the French Revolution, along with legislating this new property regime into existence, also legislates new laws revolving or surrounding credit into existence. Um, so, for example, before the revolution happens, um, you could use forms of old regime property like senior, uh, seigneurie, or venal offices, which were offices that were uh, purchased from the king, but could be passed down generationally, uh, those were considered a form of property, even though they were actually uh, public power, almost like, you know, if, if I were mayor of Atlanta, which is where we are now, you know, my son would inherit that position, as well as all the um, honorific titles that go with it, and the, the yearly, uh, yearly stipend that would go with it would be inherited by my son. And that would be a form of inherited property. So this is a very expansive definition of property. Yeah, it's huge. It's hugely common all throughout old regime France before the French Revolution. So venal offices are held not just by the nobility, but by the third estate as well. And it's, a, it's considered a stable form of providing uh, oneself with yearly income and one's descendants as well. But to purchase one, one has to pay an upfront fee to the monarchy. So it's a way for the monarchy to raise funds. The problem in part, part of the reason that the the monarchy is in such a debt crisis before the French Revolution is that it is paying uh, yearly um, stipends associated with venal offices to all these office holders throughout the realm. So all this money is going out of the the, uh, monarch's treasury, out of the treasury, and those offices, when they originally purchased, had brought money into the treasury, into the treasury, into the state's coffers. Um, but by this time, there's so many offices out in circulation 
they're, they're having to pay the um, office holders these yearly funds. And, and this is really actually contributing to the destabilization of the French state. Um, but that office itself, that venal office itself, is a form of property where um, a debtor can say to a creditor, if I'm not able to pay back my debts, you actually can seize this venal office that I have. The repo man can come and take your mayor sash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now there's a new mayor in town, and uh, and you're, you're out of, of uh, not just the job, but also the yearly revenue that job provided, and also the, all the social clout that went with it as well. So it's a very kind of complicated idea of, um, of how property works, and it's very closely combined with um, public power. This is, of course, referring to the old regime. Um, but the French Revolution changes that, and along the way, uh, creditors, instead of you know demanding that things like venal offices are used as a guarantor in a loan, instead increasingly ask their debtors to provide specific pieces of land or um, real estate in a loan contract um, that they, the creditor, could confiscate in the event of non-payment. So what one thinks of as property is really changed by the French Revolution in, in relation to credit as well and how credit works. So you might say that our modern definition of property comes from this period. I think that there's a lot of, yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of um, new ideas that are, are in play at this time that we now kind of just take for granted as modern. Um, of course, there is a real difference between what's happening in France and what's happening in the Anglo-American world, and even just um, how things like debt and credit are handled in the Anglo-American world. Um, if you were to translate the word ipotech into English, um, it, it's often translated as mortgage. But really, a mortgage and an ipotech are not quite the same thing. Um, an ipotech is a creditor's right to some of your property in the event that you don't pay back your loan, whereas a mortgage, um, the bank technically... If I'm not mistaken, the bank owns the piece of property. You have the deed. You're paying the bank um, a monthly mortgage. Upon paying that mortgage off, you are now the sole owner of the of the piece of property in question, of the home or whatever it is. So really, um, the, the key distinction would be that with an ipotech, the debtor is the full sole owner of the property in question. It's rather just that the creditor has this legal right to the property that's built into the credit contract. So that is a key distinction between how the mortgage functions here in um, the Anglo-American world and how it works in France. You've drawn a lot on Rafe Blaufarb's book, The Great Demarcation. He points out that changing all of these property relationships and debt relationships had big social and political implications. He actually says this is a lot of what the revolution was all about. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so Blaufarb's uh, 2016 work, The Great Demarcation, um, is really the best resource to, to track this change in the definition of property. Um, before the French Revolution, before this Great Demarcation, um, property is really bound up with public power. After the French Revolution, that is no longer the case, and, and property is really a um, privately owned, is, is conceptualized around private ownership. Um, so re really what's happening is there's this idea that expressed, or not by Blaufarb, but by other historians, that um, the old regime had essentially complicated property with um, lots of laws and all kinds of, of new definitions like venal offices of what constitutes property. Um, and that all one would have to do would be get rid of these old regime practices surrounding property and one could get down to a sort of... Um, base 
substructure as to what constituted real property. But what Blaufarb argues happens is that um, there is no real property. Property is essentially constructed legally. You do away with the old regime um, way of constructing, proper, constructing properties uh, definition. You have to replace it with something else. And Blaufarb argues that that's what happens during the French Revolution. There's a specific set of lawyers who are very familiar with um, the old regime's laws surrounding property, and they, in turn, help construct of this new definition of property, which really is built around it, one of the fundamental hallmarks of it would be not only the separation of um, the state as uh, the foremost owner of property within the realm, which was um, really what the monarchy was. It owns um, a tremendous amount of land and really all legal ownership of land flowed through the monarchy from the monarchy. And Blaufarb argues that that's, that's replaced by individual land ownership, or um, what we would come to think of now today as private property. Some might call this a Marxist interpretation or reinterpretation of the French Revolution, but I think that that probably might be going too far. I think it is indebted to Marx in some respect, but um, but it is actually a, a pretty new interpretation that hasn't been, an interpretation like this hasn't been attempted in some time, probably since Francois Fure published Reinterpreting the French Revolution. Shifting gears, you're working on your dissertation right now. I was hoping you could walk us through what that's like. I decided I want to go back to wanted to go back to grad school um, in and around 2012, and more specifically, I wanted to look at the French Revolution and the Napoleonic era in particular. Um, and that's how I ended up at, at Florida State because of the fact that, along with UNT, they have a focus on that field of history. But, of course, uh, after having applied for the program and been accepted to the program, one has to, one has to eventually settle on a dissertation topic, and usually that's done in consultation with one's advisor. And that's exactly what happened in this case. I, when I first came to FSU, I thought I might do something like a um, regimental history of uh, perhaps the wild geese, which were the, um, the Irish regiment fighting for Napoleon on the continent. And that was typically the type of dissertation topic that had come out of FSU in the past. And those are incredibly worthwhile uh, subjects of investigation. And um, I still have a great abiding love for military history. But while I was at FSU, when I started taking coursework, and I became more aware of the importance of the French Revolution and shifting people's idea of where one fits in within, within society, how property plays a role in that. Um, So there's really a, there's Overlapping concerns between um, one's social standing and the property that one holds. And the way that property informs one's social standing is transformed by the French Revolution in many respects. And I became more aware of this transformation just through coursework here at Florida State University and um, also through Dr. Blaufarb's uh, work, The Great Demarcation. And um, I became much more interested in it. And so I decided I wanted to pursue a topic that was relevant to, um, to this change. And really, it's about the change of a change in individuals' place within the larger society. All of uh, society, you know, was was um, categorized during the old regime according to one's um, uh, core or etat, um, depending on the circumstances, and all that carried with it specific privileges and rights. 
And these very specific overlapping privileges and rights are being replaced now during the French Revolution by universal rights, some ways more abstract. But in any case, they, um, they are assumed to be more equal in their application. So equal application of the law becomes a big uh, theme of the French Revolution. And that, of course, extends into credit, extends into property. And um, so in the, in the course of taking classes that touched on these topics, of, of doing readings for these classes that concerned changing definitions of property, I became more and more interested in it. Um, I'm still interested in the military history side of things. I'm still very interested in, um, you know, uh, biographies of Napoleon's marshals. I've not lost that interest, but but as, as far as writing my dissertation, I've decided to take it more in economic and legal history direction. Um, and, and in terms of answering your question about what it's like to be a grad student, I mean, I think if you like to read history and you like to write about history and you're interested in the arguments of different historians about, um, about the subject that you're most interested in, you're interested in the arguments that surround that subject, I think, you know, grad school is, is a wonderful place to really um, familiarize yourself with different writers, their arguments, and then enter into that larger discourse yourself. And um, the job field isn't exactly ideal at this moment, but um, <laughs> but it still is, is very rewarding intellectually. And of course, you know, you get to read wonderful things that you might not otherwise been, have been exposed to. But I just want to say, I want to take this opportunity to say that your podcast is really a great resource in terms of expo- ex- exposing people to some of those works that are out there, you know, uh, debates, larger historiographical debates. Well, thank you. And for the record, I did not coach him to say that. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So you're just back from France, where you've spent a lot of time in the departmental archives. What's that like? It's actually very wonderfully organized. Throughout France, they all adhere to the same system of classification. Jacobin centralization. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So that in itself is a legacy of the revolution. You know, the centralization of the French Revolution, um, not just of property, not just of rights, but also of information and how it's organized and categorized. Um, so you go to the, the departmental archives and they're all kind of, they're all organized the same, they're all classified the same. Um, but there is a great variation in what they have there at the archives. You know, some are really rich and have a lot of materials stretching back well into the Middle Ages, um, even before, you know, you, you can find, I found, um, credit contracts, lead seals, and wax seals dating all the way back to you know, the 1300s and things like that. So you can find some really cool stuff. And the rules surrounding access, you know, you have to submit your your passport and fill out an application where you promise to, of 
course, treat the documents with respect and to adhere to all the guidelines that are laid out for you. But there's no really restrictions on access as long as you abide by those rules. So it's, it's very democratic in that respect, too, in the sense that I know that there's lots of archives in places like Russia and others that are credibly guarded and um, to, ac- to even access them, you know, you have to go through a lot of steps. It's not really that way in France, as long as you as you adhere to the guidelines that you're given and are there with a with the correct type of visa and so on, you're not going to have any issue with accessing documents that you need. I would also just say that the archivists are extremely helpful. Uh, many of the archivists there in France uh, have served in other archives within France. So if you're, say, in the departmental archive of Bouche du Rhone, your archivist might have served in um, a different departmental archive. So not only can they help you find things within that archive, but can point you in the direction of other archives that they've served in. So I had that happen several times and um, was always very pleased with just the professionalism and, and helpfulness of the staff that I encountered in France. So it's much, you wouldn't think this to be the case, but it's actually much better than what you find in Germany, where you would expect to, to find, you know, this emphasis on, on organization and, um, you know, meticulous attention to detail. But Germany also was this loose confederation of different principalities and, and so on. So everything's sort of scattered, whereas France has been a, a centralized state, even arguably before the French Revolution. And so you have a much more, you might say, uh, higher standard of, of organization at the archival level. And my, my wife and I, we just really enjoyed, lastly, living in France, which um, it's a wonderful place to live. That's all I can really say about that. I mean, great food and the people are, are friendly and are kind. Um, and uh, we really liked living there. So maybe someday we'll go back, hopefully future research projects yeah. after I finish this one. It's Age of Napoleon. We've got to talk about Napoleon. You've studied his civil code. What was the new paradigm for debt under Napoleon? Um, In terms of private debt or private credit contracts, um, the revolutionaries were very keen to emphasize the publicity of people's debt. So in other words, if you wanted to obtain credit, obtain a loan, you actually had to register that loan with your local office of Ebotech. And they would record it there, and it would be public knowledge. Anybody could go and look you up to make sure that you had a good credit history. And they could look at every loan that you had out and how much property that you had um, on offer to, to guarantee those loans. Um, so it was very much uh, the emphasis of the revolutionary era, era was one on transparency, on um, publicizing people's credit histories. But uh, by the time of the, the Napoleonic Code, that emphasis shifts and um, it ends this principle of publicity or of transparency. Um, No longer are you required to register your credit contracts with the local office of Epotech. That is now a private matter between you and your creditor and the notary that drew up the credit contract. Um, And for the Napoleonic Code, that's good enough. But what they do do is they add some additional enforcement to these um, notarized credit contracts. In other words, they include some laws where if um, a debtor commits fraud, for example, a debtor might say to a creditor, uh, this piece of property here, no other creditor has a legal claim to it, so I offer it up as a guarantor on this loan, when in reality, six or seven other creditors might already have a legal claim to that piece of property. The, the writers of the Napoleonic Code wanted to avoid that, so they made that illegal, that type of lying about um, previous Epotech contracts. You had to be totally honest with your creditor about other creditors' claims. 
So you could no longer commit that type of fraud, which was pretty prevalent during the old regime. But I would also argue that by privatizing these contracts, um, it also means that this new emerging Napoleonic elite, uh, there's no way for other individuals to really uh, find out about their personal finances. It's all private private information now, whereas before it would have been very public under the previous um, the previous regime of, of, um, of credit operating during the French Revolution. So it's privatized again, and that's really nice for these, these, new, these new members of the Napoleonic elite. Um, you know, he's establishing eventually a new nobility. Some of that new nobility is members of the old nobility that had fled France during the instability of the French Revolution and returned, and Napoleon wants to bring them back into the fold of the state. But many of the, the members of this new nobility are... Um, enterprising entrepreneurs, financiers, um, large landholders that made the right moves at the right time during the French Revolution, that purchased um, Bien Nationaux, which were um, properties that were seized by the nation but then resold to raise funds for the nation. These entrepreneurs purchased uh, choice pieces of land, um, became wealthy in the process, and they're not really interested in letting everybody know uh, what time? What type of property they own, and um, how much, uh, how many loans they have out. They want to keep that information private. So the Napoleonic Code, it uh, accommodates their preference for privacy, and I think one could argue that 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 works hand in hand with this new um, elite that Napoleon's trying to create. I think also um, the primary concern of Napoleon is that this new elite contributes to the state, whether that's through um, paying taxes or whether that is through sending their sons to serve in the, in the army. He wants to make sure that the new elite that he's created, their interests and the state's interests are aligned. Um, so he doesn't really care as much about private credit. What he cares about is the fact that the state knows how much property they own so they can be accurately taxed, so that they're paying the amount of taxes that they should be, since these are the, some of the more wealthy individuals within the Napoleonic regime. So um, I guess it's a question of, what the, the writers of the Napoleonic Code believe to be worthwhile knowledge on the part of the state. And they conclude that ultimately people's private credit histories isn't necessarily relevant to the state. Rather, that can be confined to the private sphere. What they want to know is how much property they own. And to do that, they create a land registry called the Cadastra, which Napoleon um, is one of Napoleon's pro many projects. Well, that takes care of everything I really wanted us to get into. But I was wondering if, before we go, you could talk a little bit about the Bank of France. Or is that outside your purview? Um, no, it's within my purview. I'm still, I'm still in the research phase, and there's more research I need to do about the, uh, concerning the Bank of France. But from the way under, I understand it to operate, um, the bank sells shares. These shareholders help fund the Bank of France, and um, it's used by Napoleon to in turn, fund the state. Um, but also, it, of course, uh, helps issue currency and it really st helps stabilize France economically. Overall, the revolutionary era was a, a destabilizing time to be living in France. You had the, the revolutionary currency of the Assignat, its value plummeted um, around 1795 especially. And what happened in respect to loans was that all these debtors who now possessed this nearly worthless currency, the Assignat, decided that was a perfect time to pay back their loans. They'd pay it back in this worthless currency. And so creditors stopped lending money because they were being paid back in currency that really was practically worthless and continued to lose value. 
So credit markets really just the bottom dropped out of, of credit markets and legislation introduced during the revolution by the directory was designed to help restabilize credit markets. But really, Napoleon is the one who brings about ultimately the economic restabilization of France. And the Bank of France is one of the ways in which he does this. It's one of his anchors of granite that he puts in place that exists really to serve the French state, but also to to keep things running smoothly, to keep the economy running well. And it, it works very well compared to what came before. Again, that was Zachary Stoltzfus from Florida State University. I really enjoyed my conversation with him, and I hope you guys did too. The book we mentioned was The Great Demarcation by Rafe Blaufarb. I'm hoping to do more interviews like this one in the future, but next time we'll be back to Egypt and the narrative. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.